0: Hello, this is Peggy Joyce Ruth. Welcome to our podcast and hope you enjoy this teaching. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org. Okay, I want you to turn to 1 John 2 verse 15. This is an unusual scripture. John wrote the Gospel of John and then he wrote three letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. This 1 John 2 15 says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So the Bible is very clear. We can't love the world or anything that's in the world. In other words, he's saying don't love anything that's worldly or anything that's ungodly. He said, if we love those things that are worldly or ungodly, then the love of the Father is not in us. And then verse 16 describes what's in the world. In verse 16 he says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. I used to read that and I thought, what on earth does that mean? I had no idea. And the Lord began to reveal to me just how foundational this scripture really is. Every temptation... Well, since the fall of man, every single temptation will fall into one of these three categories. So I want us to look at this scripture real closely because I think it can be very beneficial. Now, we're going to break it down, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. But I want you to look for just a moment at James 1.14. It's going to let us know that every temptation is going to come when we're enticed by our own lust. And so in James 1.14 it says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now I'm going to give you the definition of the word lust. Lust is any strong desire or any longing for that which is forbidden. Okay, any strong desire or any longing for that which is forbidden. So every temptation now is going to come from the root of lust. It's going to come from the root of a strong desire or a longing for something that's forbidden. But I want us to go a step further, and I want us to see that every temptation is going to come from one of those three lusts that were listed there in 1 John 2, verse 16. It's either going to come from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, or the boastful pride of life. Now, all of it started for man back in the garden. It was all present there in the first sin. And I want you to see that all three of these were in that first sin experience. I want you to turn to Genesis 3.6. Now we read this scripture a lot, but this is the foundation for the sin, for the the first temptation that came to man. And I want us to see that all three of these lusts that were listed over there in 1 John 2.16 were present right here in this Genesis temptation. So in Genesis 3, verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Okay, now I want us to break this down. The first thing, when the woman saw the tree, she saw that it was good for food. Okay, that's the lust of the flesh. Now, the lust of the flesh is always going to involve our basic needs. Now, they can be carnal needs, or it could be needs that are legitimate. But anytime there's a strong desire or a longing to have our needs met in a way other than God's way, in a way that's forbidden, then we're going to find that it's the lust of the flesh. Now, Eve was trying to satisfy her own need. In this particular case, it was for food. She saw that it was good for food. And so she was trying to satisfy her own needs in a way other than God's way. Instead of allowing God to satisfy those needs, she was trying to have those needs satisfied through this forbidden tree. Now, she saw that it was good for food. Now, we're going to find that it never works when we try to provide our own needs in a way other than God's way. It's never going to work but man continually tries that over and over anyway. You see the poor, obsessed with the desire to be rich. And why? Well, first of all, they desire to be rich because they never want to have to worry about having their needs met again. And they think, boy, if I were rich, then I would never have to worry about it again. My needs would always be met. See, they're trying to make riches their source for meeting their needs, rather than allowing God to be their source. Now, later you can look up Romans 13, 14, but it says, make no provision for the lust of the flesh. Doesn't say that, you know, it's okay on occasion. It says, make no provision for the lust of the flesh. Okay, what's Paul saying there? Well, one thing that he's saying is that we're to make no provision to have our needs met in a way other than God's way. In other words, we can't come up with our own reasoning or our own logic trying to figure out how we can get our needs met. That's not God. It's never God. God said, I'm the supplier of your needs. He said, I'm your Jehovah Jireh. I'm the Lord who provides. And any time we try to supply for ourselves by the arm of flesh, we're going to find that it is the lust of the flesh. Let me give you an example. I don't know how many of you remember reading in the paper several years ago about this man that was caught stealing from the 7-Eleven stores. Well, after he was caught, they asked him why he had done that, and he said, well, I was trying to provide for my family. I was trying to put food on the table. Well, this lady was with me, and She made a statement that just totally shocked me. I just couldn't believe my ears. She said, well, you know, you really can't blame him. After all, he was just trying to provide for his family. And you could have just knocked me over with a feather. And I just wanted to take her and shake her till I could shake some sense in her. And I thought, you know, where are people coming from? And, you know, I dare say that he had a deeper motive for stealing than what he named but even if he were stealing just to provide for the needs of his family, he was providing for his needs in a way that was forbidden. That was his tree in the midst of the garden. See, the Bible says, thou shalt not steal. Doesn't say thou shalt not steal unless your family's hungry, it doesn't say that. So it was a lust of the flesh, no matter how honorable the need might have been, no matter how heart-rendering his motive sounded, And God says, make no provision for the lust of the flesh. In other words, make no provision for your carnal fleshly needs, but it's also saying, don't make any provision for meeting your legitimate needs in a way other than God's way. Okay, I want you to look again at this verse 6. She saw that the tree was good for food, there was the lust of the flesh, and she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. Okay, the lust of the eyes. That was the second thing listed in 1 John. It looked good to her. Now Eve had decided not only that this forbidden tree could satisfy her needs, but she also realized, or thought, that it could supply her desires. Now the lust of the eye will always involve in things that we want, things that we desire, things that go past our actual basic needs when someone sees something that they want and it's forbidden it can be anything from somebody else's ballpoint pen to somebody else's wife you know it can even be somebody else's beauty that they're wanting or it could be a desire that's okay but just obtained in a wrong way or obtained for the wrong reasons see sometimes our desires are legitimate desires and they're fine but if we try to obtain them in a way that's not godly or not God's way, then it's not going to work. It's still the lust of the eyes. So anytime we provide for our own desires, we're going to find that it's never going to satisfy. Now, I want to read you a scripture in Proverbs 27.20. Put a marker here in Genesis 3. But in Proverbs 27.20, it says that, hell is not satisfied. Neither are the eyes of man ever satisfied. Okay, hell is never satisfied, neither are the eyes of man satisfied. In other words, this is referring to the lust of the eyes. So it's saying, neither will the lust of the eye ever be satisfied. Now man is and always has been enticed by things that look good. You know, we've always been enticed by that. When something looks good, we want it. And it can be anything from a a piece of pie that we shouldn't have to maybe a new car that was outside of God's will at the moment. But when that something that looks good is forbidden, or if it's the wrong timing, you know, even if we get it, even if we find a way and we reach out and get it, we're going to find that it's not going to satisfy that we're always going to be driven to want something more, or we're going to be driven to want something better. It's not going to fill that void like we think it should, Any anytime that it's the lust of the eye. Because you can never satisfy a lust. You can't. And God knew that. And that's why he said, Hell is never satisfied, neither are the eyes of man, or the lust of the eyes. Shall never bring satisfaction. Now after Adam and Eve tasted of that forbidden fruit, the desires of carnal man have never been satisfied since. And when you think about it, we haven't. You know, carnal man's always wanting more. We're always striving for more. Now, Ever since that first sin, carnal man, when he does it his own way, when he accomplishes that thing that he thinks he wants in a way other than God's way, there's gonna come a time he's gonna want more. It's not gonna satisfy. Now, let's just use a piece of pie, for example. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to have a piece of pie. But let's say that we know deep down that we don't need that piece of pie, and we know at this particular time it's wrong. Well, no matter how enticing it looks, it's gonna be the lust of the eye. Now, God tells us that he gives us good things. He satisfies our mouth with good things. So we know that he wants us to have good things, but when it's something we're not supposed to have, and we reach out and we take it anyway, we're going to find it's not gonna bring satisfaction, and it'll bring some degree of destruction. And any time we go after something when it's not God's timing, or any time we seek after something when it's either outside of God's will or not in God's timing, then it's just exactly like Eve said. She said, you know, I can eat from the trees all over the garden. She said, God's given me all these trees. But she said, from that one tree in the midst of the garden, God says, don't eat from it. Okay, that's what we do. God satisfies us with all these good things if we'll just allow Him to bring in our desires. But when we reach out and we say, no, I want that, that thing that's either not in God's will or not in God's timing, that's our tree in the midst of the garden. Just exactly like Eve said, that's my tree in the midst of the garden. I'm not supposed to eat from it. And when God says no, then it's not going to be good for us. God never tells us no just because He doesn't want us to have something. The only reason He tells us no, or the only reason He says it's not time, is because He knows that it's not going to bring good fruit in our life. Now, I've known people, and you have too, who thought that they just couldn't do without that new car that they couldn't afford. They just thought, we've got to have it now. Or maybe they just couldn't do with without that exciting experience that was ungodly. Or maybe they thought they couldn't do without that friendship that was ungodly, an unequal yoke. And they had to have it, and they had to have it now. Well, it was a lust of the eye. It was something they desired that was forbidden. So not only did it not satisfy ultimately, but it also like I said earlier, brought some degree of destruction because it's not good fruit. Anything that's not in God's timing or anything that's not in God's will will never bring good fruit in our life, ultimately. Now the lust of the eye never brings good fruit. Now I want you to look in Judges chapter 14. This is the story of Samson. And I think it's so interesting the way the writer of Judges described Samson. Now if you'll remember, Samson was a Nazarite. He was the judge over Israel. And in chapter 2, he came back from the Philistines and he told his father and mother, he said, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Well, his father knew that God had said, don't go out and marry among those who don't believe in the one true God. So the father and mother said to him, is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? That just simply means these Philistines who don't have a covenant with God. But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. That's why he wanted her. She looked good. Okay, it was a lust of the eye, and there was no good fruit in it. If you follow the rest of the story, you find out that he had to have one wife after another from the Philistines, and there was absolutely no good fruit. Okay, I want you to look back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And we see then that the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh. She saw that it was a delight to her eye. We see the lust of the eye. And... She also saw that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Okay, this is the boastful pride of life. So we find that all three of those lusts that were listed over there in 1 John chapter 2 are present right here in this first temptation experience. Now that should get our attention when we realize that the very first temptation that was followed by sin, the very first one had all three of these present the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Okay, what is the boastful pride of life? Now, it's easy to define the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye, but what is the boastful pride of life? Okay, later you can look up James 4.16, but it says when you boast in your own arrogance, some of the translations will say when you boast in your own ability or when you boast in your own self-accomplishments, It says, all that kind of boasting is evil. Okay, Paul goes on to say, if you're going to boast, then boast in the Lord. See, everything worthwhile that we're ever going to accomplish is going to be accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. And any time we accomplish something through the power of self, you know, through the power of our own self-efforts, we're going to find that it's not going to be lasting. And that's why he said, don't boast. Unless it's something that you have accomplished by the power of God. And he said, if that be the case, then boast in Him. Don't boast in the fact that you did it, but boast in Him. Okay, now the boastful pride of life is boasting either in what we have or what we've done. And anytime we're boasting in the things we have or the things we've accomplished, then if we're boasting in that, that's the boastful pride of life. Now if you look back there in verse 5 there in Genesis uh, 3, it says, For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See the boastful pride of life, that self-exaltation, you know, basically Satan was saying, you know, you don't have to be subordinate to God. You're just as good as God, and when you eat of that tree, you're not going to need God. You'll be just exactly like God. You'll know good and evil. And this boastful pride of life doesn't just take in the boasting that we do with our mouth, you know, it's not just words coming out of our mouth. When we're talking about this boastful pride of life, we're talking about a special kind of pride. It's an inner attitude. It's not just what comes out of our mouth, but it's something that we think. It's an inner attitude on the inside of us. Anytime we are pridefully being identified with something other than God, then we're into that boastful pride of life. Now some people pridefully identify with their own spirituality. They're proud of the fact that other people see them as being super spiritual. Or maybe they're pridefully identifying with their own good looks. Or maybe they're pridefully identified by their wisdom or their knowledge, or it could be power, prestige, or or money, or whatever. You've known people who were pridefully identified by these different things. Putting any one of these things up and exalting them and seeing that as something so wonderful that we have, we'll find that that's idolatry. Now let me give you an example. Anytime that there is a, say, a craving for knowledge and we want to get more and more education, simply so that we'll be known for our brilliance, then that's mind idolatry. That's that attitude down on the inside of us that is in the boastful pride of life. Anytime we're craving something so that we'll be known for that thing. And you could think of people that you've known whose whole identity was wrapped up maybe in their power or in their beauty. And they pridefully identify with that. And apart from that, sometimes they wouldn't even have an identity. You've known people like that. We knew this girl in high school and she was beautiful. Anytime that someone would mention her name, you would think about how pretty she was and somebody would mention the fact that she was really, really pretty. But apart from her beauty, you couldn't think of anything else that she identified with. You know, she had built her whole identity around how she looked. Now, that can be done around a talent or that can be done around some achievement or whatever. And they really wouldn't even be known who they were or anything else they had done apart from that one thing. Well, any time that happens, that is the boastful pride of life. Now, we've all known people who were known for their intelligence and they were known for their beauty, but their existence didn't depend on those things. And if their existence doesn't depend on those things, when they know it's a gift from God, then that's fine. When we know it's a gift from God and, and God has given us a talent and we're continually praising Him and thanking Him for that talent and giving it back to Him to be used in His kingdom, then that's how God intended it to be. That's not a problem. But any time we get our identity from one of these things and that's how we want to be identified, then that's wrong. Our identity has to come from who we are in Jesus Christ. Our acceptance has to come from who we are in Jesus Christ. See, sometimes we're wanting acceptance from everybody else, and we have to stop and say, No, Lord, I want my acceptance from you first. And when we get our acceptance from God first, then we're going to find everything else will fall in place. Our acceptance in other areas will fall in place. Now, I was reading a psychological study from a book called Hooked on Life, and they gave an example of this young man named Paul. And as I was reading it, they didn't call it the boastful pride of life, but I recognized that it was a classic example of what the Bible calls the boastful pride of life. He was a public relations executive, he was 32 years old, and he went to church every Sunday. He would always pull up in front of church in this bright red Porsche. And the study went on to say that He would never think of missing church on Sunday. He would never think of not pulling up in front for everybody to see him going to church. And he had the idea that going to church was a part of this beautiful person idea. And everything in his life centered around this beautiful person image. Now he was the picture of health. He even taught a class on physical fitness. And his car and his home and his clothes told the world that he was a man of means and that's what he wanted it to do. He liked that, he wanted people to see him as a man of means. And so spending became a compulsion because his possessions made him feel important. That was important to him. Of course it's the right thing to do to go to church. Many of the things that he was doing, they were the right thing to do. But they said that his talk and his church attendance was in direct conflict with the way that he lived his life. So that church attendance really was just one of the status symbols along with everything else that he had. And he was identifying with those things rather than with his relationship in Jesus Christ. And everything in his life centered around this beautiful person image. Now it's not that these things that he had or what he was doing. It's not that they were wrong, but it's just that we cannot allow those things to create our image or create our identity. They're fine in right proportion, but when they're making up our image, when they're creating an identity, then they're not right. Well, the counselor said that they finally brought him to the place where he realized that he had an inferiority complex and that he was trying to wear and drive and say and do Everything that he thought was going to make him look successful. Well, he had to finally come to the place where he realized that the only real success that he was going to have was going to be in Jesus Christ. And surprisingly then, he found that after that got in right proportion, after he came to know the Lord, and after he went to church for the right reasons, and his relationship became right with the Lord, then all these other things fell in place. He was able then to have his nice car, he was able to come to church, he was able to do all the things, but when it was in right priority, it brought him the satisfaction that he was looking for. It brought him the acceptance. And no longer then was he drawing his identity from the wrong source. And so he pulled out of the boastful pride of life, even though that's not what they called it, but he pulled out of that and he went in to having godly desires, getting it in proportion. Now, we might not be doing anything to that degree, but anytime we're getting our identity or our acceptance to any degree from something other than our relationship with Jesus Christ, anytime we're doing something that makes us feel elevated, you know, in our own accomplishments, then we're entering into the boastful pride of life. Now, if we gain our reason for living, or our significance. See, some people, the only reason that they have for living is because of maybe some child or maybe some task that they're doing. See, our reason for living can't be any of those things, even though those may be good things. Our reason for living has to be Jesus Christ. Our significance has to come from the fact that we know Jesus Christ. And if we get it from someone or something other than God, then it is the boastful pride of life. Well, by now, we're realizing that every temptation that you'll ever encounter is going to come from either the lust of the flesh, trying to reach out and supply needs in a way other than God, the lust of the eye, supplying desires in a way other than God, or the boastful pride of life, trying to get our significance from some place other than God. We're going to find that every temptation comes from one of those three areas. Now, this was Satan's tactic from the beginning. But seldom do we stop and realize that the reason it was his tactic is because that was what was in his heart. I want you to notice that the same pattern was in the fall of Satan. I want you to turn to Isaiah 14, starting with verse 12. Isaiah 14. You know, I'd never stopped to realize that the reason his temptations to us fall in these three categories, is because these are the three categories that make up his life. These are in his heart. So Isaiah 14, starting with verse 12, this is a personification of Satan, and it says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, or above the angels of God. I will sit in the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High God. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to show to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made this world tremble? who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home. In other words, there's going to come a time when people are gonna look at Satan and they're going to say, is this the one that made me tremble? Is this the one that caused the whole earth to be afraid and shook kingdoms? But God was describing the personality of Satan, the ambitions of Satan. And when he saw God's throne in the midst of the assembly and he saw all of the angels there around the throne and they were all serving and worshiping God, he began to covet that which God had because he wanted that for himself. Now he wanted that to meet that sick need. Now it might have been a sick need, but it was still a need in him. And it appealed to his eyes. If you'll notice, he saw it. He wanted it. He desired it. It looked good to him. He saw God's throne and he saw the angels and he realized, he began to say, I'm going to raise my throne and I'm going to become like that. That lust of the eye then brought him on over into the boastful pride of life. And that's when he began to say, I'm going to make myself like the Most High God. The boastful pride of life. So all three of these lusts were present in Satan's heart. Now it was the pattern by which he failed, by which he had his fall, it was also the same exact pattern by which he tempted Adam and Eve, and they failed. And that's the root for every single temptation that will ever come our way. Every time you're tempted, it's going to fall either in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the boastful pride of life. Now, temptation is not a sin. We can be tempted and we can say no. If a person goes ahead and yields to that temptation, there is a progression, a downward spiral that always happens. And sometimes if we can see the tactic of the enemy, it's a lot easier to stop it. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that you've shown us in the Word of God not only all the good and wonderful things that you've provided, but Father, I thank you that you've also shown us in the Word of God the things for which we need to beware. Father, I thank you that You have shown us that there are temptations. You've shown us what those temptations are. You've shown us the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eye and the boastful pride of life. And Father, I thank you that you're preparing us so that when temptations come, we're going to have that wisdom and and that knowledge. And it's going to come up out of our spirit and we're going to more easily and more readily be able to say no. I thank you for that, Lord. Father, we ask you in the name of Jesus to just reveal these things to our heart in such a way, Father, that we'll be quick to recognize the schemes of the enemy and we'll be quick to run to you every single time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Please share this teaching with anyone you think it would minister to. If you would like to listen to more in-depth teachings, please sign up for our Psalm 91 family at PeggyJoyceRuth.org.